Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy. My pleasure to welcome this podcast. Two special guests, Dr. Yuro Vodovitz, who is a professor at the University of Pittsburgh and also director of the Center for Information and Regenerative Modeling. Our second guest is Dr. Michael Parkinson. He's senior medical director for UPMC Health Plan and Work Partners. Gentlemen, welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. So the subject today is to talk about a very interesting Lifestyles Medicine Summit that these two gentlemen organized, and they recently published the results. Let me just read the first line from the report, declining life expectancy and increasing all-cause mortality in the United States has been associated with unhealthy behaviors, socio-ecological factors, and preventable disease. Can you tell me a little bit more about that finding? Sure, John. In the past five years, there's been some dramatic studies published, and I say dramatic for those of us who are concerned about the length and quality of life of Americans particularly, that have demonstrated that U.S. life expectancy, particularly in some of our most productive years, ages 25 to 44, has actually been declining. This is in marked contrast to the last trajectory of the past 80 years where life expectancy has been increasing. And when we look at the causes, the root causes of that, it is primarily lifestyle related, meaning what we eat, physical activity, obesity, as well as recent rise in addictions, such as the opioid epidemic, and increasingly preventable diseases, things like heart disease, which in our own region here in Pittsburgh and nationally is actually, after years of declining, going up. And it's not due to the lack of medical care, it's due to worsening lifestyles that are driving an overwhelming increase in obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. And that's one of the national urgencies that we felt that we needed to bring together people in the emerging area of lifestyle medicine to say, what can we do about these unfortunate trends? So what do we do about this? Well, the good news here is that over the last five to 10 years, We've known for years that eating better, loosely defined as less processed foods, more emphasis on plant-based eating, lower quantities of meat, particularly red meat, dairy, those types of things associated with longer life. We've known that physical activity is associated with longer life from studies around the world. We've known that stress has adverse health effects We've known that sleep is generally important for you, but we didn't know how important. We kind of knew that people who lived in social connected communities or had passions in their lives or were able to have a purpose when they got out of bed in the morning, that that was important. And finally, we understood that tobacco, alcohol, and substance abuse like opioids wasn't good for you. What's different is an explosion of basic science knowledge that individual researchers like Yoram and many people here at Pitt are finding that there are common underlying reasons within our cells and within our bodies and common pathways that create a commonality for all of these six domains to drive heart disease, a large proportion of cancers, diabetes, a lot of inflammation that we can actually treat with lifestyle, not as an afterthought, but as a foundation. And that emergence in the last 10 years has been called lifestyle medicine. That's what's exciting. And so we felt from basic science to clinical practice to advanced research methods, which are also new and which Yoram has pioneered, 
many of the things that we've been doing here at Pitt and McGowan and others is that we could bring together those three domains, basic science, clinical practice, advanced research methods, and say, what couldn't we do to advance research in these areas? Yeah, and I, I think that the other thing that I wanted to bring into this, we're obviously doing this in the context of a McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine. And in a sense, you know, the underlying pillar or concept of regenerative medicine is allowing the body to heal itself or giving it the right cues. Well, what's more regenerative than sleep? What's more regenerative than improving your mental state? So the idea that we've spent a lot of time, effort, funding on discovering molecular mechanisms that help make that happen in settings of extreme injury and other settings, let's say neurodegenerative diseases, vision loss, and that we spent a lot of time creating computational models of these diseases, that we've spent a lot of time acquiring lots of data about these diseases and exciting novel therapeutic approaches, many of which have been pioneered here at Pitt and UPMC. Well, this is in a sense, an attempt to bridge these two fields, lifestyle medicine, regenerative medicine. The, the word there is the regenerative part. Change your lifestyle to help you regenerate following severe disease or ideally avoid the disease in the first place. Because I think, Mike, one of the things that I was not as aware of, because I'm obviously very attuned to the idea of preventing a disease from starting. I've tried my best. But you really pointed out to me how much work there has been, including clinical studies, showing that you can reverse existing disease with lifestyle medicine. And I think that's a really crucial development. And tell me more about the summit. How many people did you have? What was the dispersion of interest and skills and so forth? Well, we reached out. This was an invitation-only meeting to recognize national and international experts in each of the six major domains of lifestyle medicine, which I mentioned previously, as well as Yoram reached out to leading thought leaders and researchers in some advanced research methods, advanced models of inflammation, artificial intelligence. And we were able to convene in the middle of December in a blowing snowstorm about, I think the total was 60 to 70 experts for two intensive days of presentations, panel discussions, and engagement. We were extraordinarily pleased that people of such stature and people who were so busy saw this as a refreshing and challenging interdisciplinary meeting. We couldn't have been more pleased. What's the availability of this from a clinical perspective? The good news is, is that through organizations such as the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and the American College of Preventive Medicine, which are medical specialty societies, that physicians are becoming trained in how to promote both the knowledge content and the behavior change skills in their patients for plant-based eating, regular physical activity, the notion of writing a prescription. At UPMC, we have something called Prescription for Wellness in which physicians across Western Pennsylvania literally write a prescription for their patients in the electronic medical record and receive health coaching through the health plan with feedback to the doctor in a month as to how John is doing in converting his diet, for example, or for doing mindfulness training for his stress or taking cues on how to get that seven hours of necessary restorative sleep that resets your inflammation and your parasympathetic nervous system. 
Doctors aren't trained in any of this, John, in any of these six domains. They have a huge gap and a deficit, but we are creating linkage programs for doctors both to get trained in it and to do it. UPMC and Pitt will be, I can't say, but we are moving towards certification programs and some of our medical residency training programs in this area. And it's being accepted readily by thought leaders in not only this system, but across the country. So when I look at your report, I see a long list of diseases that include cardiovascular, cancer prevention and survival, diabetes, type one and type two, autoimmune diseases, hormonal diseases, renal, brain health, and neurological diseases. That's quite a comprehensive list. Does lifestyle medicine provide opportunities to address all these? Yes, and that's what's dramatic. The reason that we brought together, and we call it the Lifestyle Medicine Research Summit is, and we've documented this in a study that the NIH reviewed of its own research portfolio, the amount of research dollars going into these root causes of so many common diseases is very small relative to the burden that they cause of preventable death and morbidity. And so even the NIH is realizing now that they need to invest more money in the root cause research, things like precision nutrition. What can we do? And we wanted to ask the experts about prioritized research across multiple diseases that could be given to places like the NIH or the Veterans Administration or DOD or the American Heart Association, which was represented, to help them rethink the portfolios of how they invest their research dollars. Because if I can say anything to our readers who can access our research report, Open Access and Frontiers in Medicine, the Rosetta Stone of the entire paper is in the sole figure, it's figure one that Yoram constructed with my input to say, how does this all fit to help us think systematically and holistically about regeneration, reducing disease through primary emphasis on lifestyle? If I could add, John, so as you know, the central pillar of the Center for Inflammation and Regeneration Modeling at the McGowan Institute that I direct, that is the idea that inflammation is at the root cause of many, if not most, perhaps all current diseases that we face, both in terms of the severe infectious diseases, such as the COVID epidemic or the more chronic diseases that are clearly associated with lifestyle mismanagement. And the idea is then that it makes sense to think about, and it gives you a logical underpinning for why so many diseases that you mentioned seem to be linked to lifestyle issues, because at the end of the day, it funnels into inflammation. And inflammation then in turn is linked to all these diseases. So that was sort of the nexus of this whole meeting and, and how it got started was Mike and I having those discussions kind of on our own and coming to this realization that on the one hand, the lifestyle medicine field was pretty clearly coalescing around the idea that inflammation is a central generative and causative phenomenon. And we on the other side were focusing so much attention on trying to get a root cause understanding of how it is that inflammation acts, how inflammation is wired with other physiological processes, et cetera. So that's another natural point of connection. And I think that it's just that circumstances were aligned that these core 
ideas were coming together and also that the core constituencies were beginning to realize that the problems they all face were very similar. So as Mike interacts with various companies, they know it from a cost perspective. The U.S. government knows it from a health burden. The Department of Defense knows about it from a force readiness perspective. Everyone is coming together to realize that they're facing the same problems and that the same problems have possibly the same root causes and possibly also have, you know, as a potential solution, changes associated with lifestyle. The other thing, Jana, I would say on the basic science level, and I do this at my own risk because Yorm's the expert and I'm a primary care doc who also trained in preventive medicine. What we've learned about genetics is probably most powerfully expressed through epigenetics, which is, it's awesome to see how quickly, to Yorm's point, the body seeks to repair itself. If basically you can rapidly change what you eat, how you move, what you think, how you sleep, how you connect, what we can now actually detect is differences in protein expression, not the genetics per se, but the epigenetics that happens rapidly. The body wants to do this if we just allow it and not keep insulting it. So epigenetics, which is tied into the microbiome, which is the natural flora in our gut that is altered tremendously by what we eat and other factors, it affects our immunity. Why is it that COVID people in many cases are much more susceptible? It's because our immune systems are suboptimal because of our lifestyle, among other factors. And then finally, the brain has this wonderful new quality that we underappreciate, it's called neuroplasticity. Your brain is not fixed. The neural patterns are not fixed. They can be remodeled. So essentially, epigenetics, the microbiome, neuroplasticity, what we know about telomere shortening and aging, we've got a center of aging. Some of the experts in the world are there. So extending life, preventing disease, healthy aging to 100 is possible. We've seen it around the world, and it's not through medical therapeutics. It's through healthy environments and lifestyle. And now we have the basic science proof and understanding of how this works through that final common pathway called inflammation. It's so exciting. And so that's the type of enthusiasm that we saw in those two days. Nobody left this meeting. That's unusual for people of this stature to stick it out because they were enthralled by what they were hearing from the panelists. By the way, all of the actual discussions are available on the Arnborn Institute website which funded the meeting along with the in-kind contribution by the University of Pittsburgh. And all of that information is available even beyond our published manuscript. We'll put the link to that website on the podcast website for anybody that's interested. So let me explore another topic. So you talked about some of the things that you and I can do to improve our lifestyle. One of the aspects of the report is socio-ecological influences. And it seems to me that some of these things sort of beyond our immediate personal control. John, that was obvious. I won't call it attention at the meeting, but it was the right holistic perspective that the meeting also addressed, which is why we summarize that in the paper. What we don't want to be saying is that John fails because he's making all the wrong choices. What we realize is that healthy lifestyles live within the context of healthy and supportive environments, which in most cases don't exist. So access to healthier foods, connections in a community to meaningful 
family or organizations or education systems, all of these oftentimes drive whether or not those six healthy behaviors can actually happen or not. So there was considerable discussion. This can't just be seen as a clinical one-to-one interaction between a doctor and a patient. We have to make sure that interaction is connected to supportive environments and communities that make the right thing to do, the easy thing to do, if you will. And so that's why the paper also discusses, and we're seeing that after the meeting was convened with COVID, is communities of color, socioeconomic deprivation, lack of education. These things have to be addressed. It's just that we now have the clinical evidence and the basic science evidence as to why it's more paramount than ever than others. Joe, to follow up on your last point, you're not talking about in the report about high priority populations, including children, underserved, understudied, disadvantaged populations. Tell me a little bit more about that. What we're finding, for example, cardiovascular disease in the adult may actually start in utero or in infancy. And because these are chronic diseases, some of the earliest findings in cardiovascular disease started from autopsies in young soldiers in their teens and 20s during the war, World War II, when they found that there was early signs of cardiovascular disease in teenagers and young adults. Well, there's now evidence that goes even earlier into childhood. And when we see, for example, here in Western Pennsylvania, the increasing prevalence of obesity in mothers, in infants, in young children and adolescents, these diseases are starting very young. And so many of our national experts said research has to extend into childhood. There's traditionally been a firewall for perhaps good, understandable reasons, but we need to expand our research into childhood. So a pediatric cardiologist, for example, from Children's, who was there looking at both congenital defects and early childhood heart disease, absolutely said, we don't know about the development in children. Likewise, special populations like African-Americans who might be more susceptible to renal failure, there's early evidence that dietary patterns create certain chemicals very early, particularly susceptible in African-American populations. So we need more trials related to nutrition in that population, particularly in urban settings, which is underway. So those are the flavor of focused research initiatives that we wanted our experts to comment on, and they did. So Dr. Vodovitz, please share with us your thoughts relative to this matter. The idea that there's actually a linkage between that process of disease starting very early or of chronic stress to epigenetics, as you mentioned. So the modification of DNA, which impacts then secondary transcription and production of proteins, is essentially a memory of your life, right? So genetics encodes kind of your starting point, what you've inherited evolutionarily. But epigenetics, it relates to the modifications of DNA that occur as your body experiences things, including specifically stresses. Now, those stresses can be life stresses. They can be trauma, traumatic stresses. They can be mental stresses. They can be lifestyle mismanagement. They can be stresses caused to the body because you ingest foods that are causing reactive oxygen species production and stress. They can be because you don't do enough exercise, which helps to clear that. You don't get enough sleep, which helps to clear that. So the link between these chronic 
processes and the chronic stress of being in sort of underserved, underprivileged populations can be tied to the epigenetics. So I thought that was a very important aspect of the meeting. Again, bringing together people that can discuss that intelligently and come up with ideas and maybe suggestions for how to take that forward into research that could have very, very impactful outcomes. So yeah, one other aspect of underrepresented, understudied populations, particularly around social inequity and inequality, is the whole notion of environmental justice. One of the discussants who is an international leader in the role of environmental toxins, food additives, and chemicals, Dr. Leo Trasande from NYU, There's an emerging body of evidence, John, that speaks about neuroendocrine disrupting chemicals, which are increasingly seen in both animal studies and early human studies that are powerful disruptors of metabolism, leading and contributing to such things as obesity and uh, certainly endocrine-related cancers they can actually transcend and have impacts across generations through preconception, conception in utero and infancy. And so environment is a broad concept that we're understanding at the basic science level that acts through our genes and through the pathways that Yoram highlighted in epigenetics of the DNA and protein expression, that again, people talk about environment as just being what you might eat or the neighborhood you live in or the cultural stresses that Yoram highlighted, but it's also emerging awareness of chemicals and substances that are in our environment through the Anthropocene, if you will, the things that are man-made that are not naturally something that our body is used to handling, and we're understanding those much better. And they tend to be concentrated in communities that have been disadvantaged over decades. And so we need to look more thoroughly into those environmental stressors as well. There's so many different angles that we could discuss, but I mean, I thought I would also add that we obviously have a longstanding interest within the McGowan Institute on regenerative rehabilitation. So after an injury or after some surgery, for example, now there's this concept of prehabilitation. And you could argue that some of these lifestyle medicine approaches are really the right way to kind of precondition patients to ensure more successful outcomes of surgical procedures, of drug administration, et cetera. So it's not automatic to say, well, we can eliminate everything you're ever going to have in life if we just only fix your lifestyle issues. There's clearly going to be diseases that will emerge, injuries that will occur that will be unavoidably requiring medical and surgical care. However, there's a lot of effort being spent on trying to optimize that. Again, we are trying to do it computationally by trying to come up with models of what it means to have been injured, what it means to have been infected, what it means to have had a surgery. And so one could imagine weaving into that what it means to have had either a good or a bad lifestyle and how that impacts, again, the molecular processes and make potentially predictions about how it is that individual prehabilitation, treatment, and then maybe rehabilitation could all blend together into a a sort of a chain of care that would have a rational basis and rational underpinning behind it. If I may, there's another major discussion of topic at the meeting that is underappreciated that I think our report and the summit highlights. And that is the adequacy or not 
of existing research methodologies to better understand these six lifestyle domains. We spent considerable time talking about whether the traditional quote unquote gold standard of a randomized controlled trial is sufficient or even possible to understand these six lifestyle factors given the methodologic complexity and some of the ethical issues. And we highlighted an entire evening discussion at the Phipps Conservatory reviewing some of the strengths and weaknesses of that gold standard and talked a lot about emerging research methodologies that are actually used at McGowan and other centers to apply them to lifestyle. And Yoram, maybe you can talk about that, but this has been a major barrier to understanding these six lifestyle behaviors better is because we in the medical and scientific community believe that absent an RCT, that the evidence isn't strong enough to recommend an intervention. Yeah, I mean, the impetus there is that these same kind of computational models that I was discussing can be played out as simulated clinical trials, and they can take into consideration many factors that are uh, often difficult to address in actual trials. So you can try out many different possible combinations of approaches, except instead of simulating a drug or a device, you're simulating a lifestyle medicine approach. Again, because of the funneling in of lifestyle into these molecular mechanisms that we're already accounting for, that all of a sudden becomes feasible. And then in terms of how to calibrate those kinds of models, how to validate them, we discussed also the presence of large biobanks that could serve as sources of data, again, to help calibrate, to validate predictions from some of these models, or to act as a source for which, from which large amounts of new data could be obtained to gain even better and newer insights. So yeah, all of these things are really intertwined. I would just comment a little bit to give a more flavor to Yoram's comment here. So when he talks about large data sets and the serobanks, I mean, we had represented this meeting, the chief researcher of the Adventist health studies that for decades have looked around the world at healthy behaviors and their association with disease states and disease specific mortality, leading researcher from the Harvard Physician and Nerve Health Studies experts from the DOD serobank where both blood and genetic samples are connected. Imagine using these national cohorts, which are a treasure, to more specifically apply these advanced research methods that Yoram mentioned so that we don't have to have costly new RCTs that methodologically are difficult or impossible to do anyway. That's what we wanted to do. So in the tables in the paper, we not only define the question and priority area, but we ask the experts, what are methodology considerations? What are possible ways to use new research methods to ask these fundamental root cause questions? Very exciting. So you gentlemen have led the way in building a roadmap, both from a personal perspective as well as a community research perspective. And I congratulate you for your work that you've done. Thanks for joining us by Zoom audio for this particular podcast. As I mentioned before, We'll put that on the podcast website, the link to this report, and also the link to the data from the sponsoring organization. Until we meet again, thank you for listening. We welcome suggestions in terms of future podcasts. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Thank you. Thank you.